This past year, we have gone through a study of a remarkable and fascinating book, the book of Revelation. Now what makes Revelation so interesting and gives it a unique place, not only in Christian history, but in human history, is that in the book of Revelation, God lays out what is coming in the future. That's no easy task. And one way to know that it's no easy task is I invite you at your leisure to look into other religious books or other religious writings or even sort of American secular humanism and try to see who actually is speaking about the future. What you'll find is that in most cases, either nothing is said about the future, or there are some vague comments about afterlife or reincarnation or those sorts of things, or there are some things about the future, but no details as to what is going to happen. This is actually, if you're interested, one of the ways you can tell the difference between, say, Christianity or Islam and Buddhism, Hinduism or just secularism. How can you know with all the religions that are out there or no religion, how can you know that what we are saying is true? Well, God actually answered this question in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, speaking about some of the idols and false religions and systems. He says this, in Isaiah 41. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your argument, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are God's. The challenge is, is look, anybody can talk about the past. Anybody can talk about the present. But God says, who is it that actually knows the future? And he challenges all would-be claimants to his throne to say, okay, fine. Put your money where your mouth is and tell us what the future holds. You will find that some do try to predict the future, but they're not very accurate. Others simply leave the future alone because who can know what's going to happen? God says the one who's in control of the future can know. And anyone who is willing to discuss the future and present the future gives you confidence that he is the one who is in control of the future. Because if you put something down on paper and it doesn't turn out, well, then the gig is up. And so the book of Revelation is so fascinating, unique in human history, because it's not just some vague comments. It's a very detailed description, sometimes excruciatingly detailed description about what is coming in the future. And we've spent the year looking at those things. Now, if you're tuning in online today, or this is your first week here, I've got good news for you. You haven't missed anything in the sense of you have come here on the most important day. 
that we've been teaching through and working through this. And of course, you're invited to go back and to listen or to read the book for yourself. But you've happened to come here or be listening in on the most important day. We're going to get to the most important event in the book of Revelation today. And it's the most important event for what is coming in the future. Therefore, if you don't know anything else about the book of Revelation, if you've never set foot in a church before, if you don't know anything about what God says is coming in the future, don't worry. Today is the one day you want to be here for. And we're going to look at a passage of the Bible that tells us about the most important event. And if you don't know anything else, if you hear about this one event, you will know the most important thing that we believe about what's going to happen in the future. So I invite you to either take a Bible or you can look at the screen behind me and turn to Revelation 19. If you're using one of your own Bibles, Revelation is the last book in the Bible and Revelation 19 is just a few pages from the end. If you're using one of the church Bibles and want to follow along there, that would be great. That's page 1003. And if you're following along on the screen, well, there it is. So this is the scene of what's coming in the future. And again, we're gonna do this in a really straightforward way. This scene is describing Jesus's return to the earth. So Jesus of Nazareth is coming back to the earth and this passage tells us about that. And so all we're gonna do is we're gonna kinda briefly go through line by line and look at what is said about this scene. We begin in verse 11 or at the start of the top of the screen. The parts we're going to be in on the screen will be highlighted in yellow so that you can follow along easily. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is the most important scene coming in the future. It is the most important thing that happens in the book of Revelation. And what is seen is Jesus coming from heaven to earth riding a white horse. Now, some 2,000 years ago from today, this same Jesus, a carpenter from the city of Nazareth in Israel, came riding into the city of Jerusalem on a young donkey. During that time, he was declared to be king, but he came riding this little donkey as a sign of gentleness and humility. And the fact that Jesus had not come to reign and rule over people, but had simply come as a servant to die on a cross for your sins and for my sins. And so he entered as a king very humbly and gently. Here, that same Jesus, that same human being who's from Nazareth, who rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, that same person is coming back to the earth, not riding a donkey, but riding a war horse. He is coming riding a white horse, which is the sign and symbol 
of him being a king. He's also called faithful and true. This is an acknowledgement that throughout human history, there have been leaders of every kind, men, women, and even children in positions of being kings or queens, emperors, rulers, generals, involved the teachers at school, bosses at work, leaders in this world. And although many of them have been of good and noble character, many of them have been role models, people to emulate, even those have had some times in which they failed to live up to what is expected of a leader. Meaning that every single person who has ever been in a position of leadership, a parent, a teacher, any position of leadership has at some point been unfaithful to that call. Not done what they were supposed to do. Except for Jesus. That's why Jesus is called faithful. He is the only one in human history and the only one who for eternity will reign and rule and lead in kindness and love and justice and mercy and has not, is not, and will not in any way be unfaithful to the call to lead. And so when he comes, he comes as one who is declared to be faithful and true. The next phrase, with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. Jesus is not coming in this scene to be merciful. He's coming to bring judgment. His eyes are like blazing fire. This is symbolic for the fact that there is no darkness to Jesus. He himself is light, means he can see all things. He can see every sin, every shortcoming, every evil, every evil thought that you and I have entertained, even today. Every betrayal of a faithfulness when it comes to leadership, every sin, every shortcoming, every instance in which we have fallen short of what God would want for us, Jesus sees. And in this passage, he is coming to judge. On his head are many crowns. Now in our culture, a crown symbolizes authority. That's not true in the culture in which this was written. The symbol for authority in this culture is a scepter. Whoever has the scepter has authority. What does a crown represent then? A crown represents worthiness. Kings and queens wore crowns because they were thought to be worthy to wear them. Why does Jesus have many crowns on his head? This is not a sign that he rules many kingdoms. It is a sign that he is infinitely worthy. That if any king or any queen or any leader has been worthy to wear a crown, Jesus is worthy to wear many crowns. Which shows the distance between him and all others 
who have ever been in positions of authority or leadership. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. Now at first blush, this seems a little confusing. Like, okay, he has a name nobody knows and by the way, the name is the word of God. You're like, well, now we all know it. So like that seems a little, that seems strange. The point is not that the name is unknowable. The point is, is the word of God? Well, you may say, well, that sounds kind of like a Bible-y sort of name. And some of us may be familiar with the fact that Jesus, other places, is called the word. What we may not know is that every other place in the Bible that Jesus is called the word, he is never once except in this place called the word of God. And what this is revealing is that Jesus here, the fullness of who he is, is now known that Jesus is fully human and fully God. His robe is dipped in blood. This is a reference to his crucifixion, that Jesus was crucified But the charge for which Jesus was crucified is that of claiming to be God. That's why he was executed. When Jesus was put to death on a cross, it was not for being a disturber of the peace. It was not for breaking any of the Mosaic laws. It was he was put to death because Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth, claimed to be the very God who created the whole world. And he was executed on the basis of that charge. In this scene, that same Jesus is returning to the earth and for the first time, this is what the name no one knows means, for the first time we will all see that this human who is totally and completely human is also fully and completely God. And that's what it means that his name is unknown. Many of us today believe that Jesus is both human and divine, but we believe it by faith. In this scene, it will be declared to be true and clear for all to see. Verse 14, we're gonna skip for a little bit because that's actually about us. Verse 15, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. When you have a king or a queen or a monarch, one of the ways to show how much authority they have is they simply say the word and then their servants run off and do whatever they were told to do. We say this about somebody who's in a position of authority. You just say the word and we'll go do it. That shows how much authority this person has. With Jesus, this is not the case. Jesus has so much power because he is God that he simply speaks the word and it happens. 
That's the sword coming out of his mouth. He simply speaks the word and it comes to pass. This is the same person who said, let there be light and there was light. There were no little servant angels who built light after he said that. He just simply spoke, let there be light and there was light. And when Jesus returns, the authority and the power that is vested in him, he simply speaks the words and they happen. No one else is like that. No one in all of human history is like that. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. This is where we get the song, the battle hymn of the Republic. It's from this line. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. This is the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. It's a war song. And the reason it's a war song is because Jesus is not coming to negotiate. He is not coming to compromise. He is not coming to have a conversation. He is coming as a conqueror bent on destroying. All of this leads to the final declaration of who Jesus is. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. King of kings, and Lord of Lords. That in this scene, when Jesus returns to the earth, it will be visible to all people that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That he is sovereign and ruler over all things. That every religious leader, every person in a position of power, every person who's ever lived in the history of humanity is under his reign and his authority. He is the king over all things. He is the Lord over all things. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now where are we in this scene? And when I say we, I mean those who today have acknowledged that Jesus is the King of Kings. By the way, this is what it means to be a Christian. You might think, okay, well, Christianity is sort of a religion. Maybe you got to join it or you got to do these rules or follow these things. It is simply this. If you acknowledge that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that means you're a Christian. When he returns, everyone will see that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But for who any today who are willing to accept and believe that Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that means you're a Christian. There isn't anything else to it. It's simply believing that Jesus, Jesus is Lord. For those of us who have accepted that, and believe that, well, where are we? We're in verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, in that group are angels, but more specifically, the focus is on those who are believers in Jesus. We are the armies of heaven returning with Jesus as he comes to wage war on the earth. Now, many of you probably have seen one of my favorite movies, Avengers Endgame. And sometimes 
when I think about kind of how all things end, I sort of get the, that movie in mind and think, oh, well, maybe the end of all things will be like the end in that movie. And if you've seen the movie, you know how it ends. And if you haven't seen the movie, this is how it ends. Basically, there's a great battle between good and evil. And you've got a lot of good guys that we had been tracking with for a long time through a whole bunch of movies. And you've got some really bad guys. And it looks like the good guys are going to be defeated. And there's only just a few of them left. And then all of a sudden, little sparkly things start to happen. And an army of good guys shows up to battle against the army of bad guys. And in the middle of this battle, it's still a battle, you know, there's uh, heroes that we've been looking, uh, that we've gotten to know, an army that shows up, and there's a lot of fighting that takes place, and there's a lot of people that, you know, it's a lot of punching, and a lot of slashing, and a lot of fighting, and a lot of weird power stuff that's happening, and the battle looks like it could go either way, it's kind of going back and forth, and you might get a sense that that's what this is like. And then at the last minute, Jesus shows up, sort of, and sort of swings the battle towards the good guy side. And then all of us are there, the army of heaven and we're kind of engaged in battle and we're all dirty and bloody because it's been a vicious fight but Jesus won us the victory that is exactly not what happens it is nothing like that in fact look at the last three verses then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army but the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And then look at this next verse. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. The idea is, is, yes, there is a battle, but there is no struggle. Yes, there is a conflict, but the end is never in doubt even for a moment. Because at some point, Jesus just simply says the word and all his enemies are destroyed. He just speaks the word. He says it and it comes to pass. He's not says it and then we put it into practice. He just speaks the word and it's over. You think, well, what are we there for? We're not there to try to help sway the battle to his side. That if somehow I could convince enough of you this morning to believe in Jesus, then there'll be enough good guys on that day that we might win that battle. That's not what we're here doing. We're here in this picture because Jesus wants to celebrate, have us celebrate with him in his victory. And that during this life, we share in Jesus' sufferings. That we're with him in the difficulties. And so he wants us to be there and to experience his victory. Well, this is Easter Sunday. And on Easter Sunday, we celebrate the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, a person just like you and me, died on a cross because he claimed to be God, not a God, not a prophet, but the God who created all things, he claimed to be that and was put to death for that claim. But God 
raised Jesus from the dead on Easter Sunday morning some 2,000 years ago, and this same Jesus ascended to heaven where he is now waiting for this. And that at some point in the future, that same Jesus who came into Jerusalem, who died on a cross, who was raised from the dead, that same person will return from heaven to earth riding a white horse and will be declared to be and seen to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're waiting for that and he's waiting for that. And you might ask the question, well, what, why are we waiting? <laughs> Like if he is a faithful and true king, if he is a righteous king, if he's going to judge injustice, if he's going to be the one person who's going to lead this world in faithfulness and in humility and in kindness and in goodness, let's get going. I'm ready for that. I don't know about you, but look around at the world and all of the leaders that are here and all of the people, even the very best ones, fall far short of deserving many crowns or the title faithful and true. Why the wait? God's waiting because he wants to be merciful. In Revelation 19, there is no mercy. This is not a time for mercy, it's a time for judgment. And God, who is rich in love, desperately doesn't want to see anybody on the wrong side of this battle. When Jesus returns, there's not a third group of bystanders who are watching it all happen, who get to then decide which side they're going to be on. You are either for Jesus or you are against Jesus. And God knows that when Jesus returns, he will simply speak the word and all those who are opposed to Jesus will be gone, destroyed, defeated. And God just desperate for that not to be you or me. And so he's waiting. He's enduring untold wickedness and evil in this world. He is putting up with pretenders to Jesus' throne who lead not in righteousness but in wickedness. He's putting up with even his own church falling far short of what Jesus himself wants for us. And he's doing that because he loves you. You see, God is the only one who can tell you what is coming in the future. Did you hear the excruciating details? It's describing Jesus, what his name is, where it's written, what his robe looked like, what his horse looks like. This is not someone who's taking a chance. I hope the future turns out this way. This is someone who has written down on paper, this is how it is going to be. Why is he doing that? Because he wants you to know this is how the game is going to turn out. This is who is going to be victorious. This is how the battle is going to end so that you and I can choose the right side today. 
When Jesus returns, you are either part of the armies of heaven celebrating with him his victory, or you are his enemy who he is going to obliterate with simply a word from his mouth. And God's desperate plea to you this morning is, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Why not acknowledge that? Your resistance to that fact is not going to change that fact. And God in his kindness is telling you ahead of time, this is what's coming so you can believe. What does it mean to believe? You've heard read to you what God is saying about the future. You got a couple of choices. You can think, hmm, Nice fictional tale, not interested. You can think, "Mm, maybe, I don't know. Or you can accept, okay, if that's how it's going to be, I accept that that's how it's going to be. If you choose to accept that Jesus of Nazareth is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, then you experience Not destruction, but salvation and rescue. And today, this Easter Sunday, in which we are celebrating with billions of people on this planet that Jesus has been raised from the dead and is waiting to return. If today you accept the truth that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then you belong to him and you are a Christian. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are here because we want people to know that this is not some idea, this is not some sort of educational pursuit, this is not some sort of intellectual construct, but that you are alive and that you are coming back to reign on the earth forever and ever. And Lord, the world may think that we are crazy, but it doesn't matter what people think, we want to know the truth. And so I pray for any who are here, any who are listening online, who have any inclination to find out the truth. Would you call to them in your voice? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you let them know that this is true? Jesus, you are the way and the truth and the life. Please, do not let anybody out of this room, do not let anybody off this broadcast without telling them that this is the way things will be. What other God is like you to declare what the future will be like? Give us ears to hear. Please overcome our unbelief and help us to see. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, Seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.